Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures and interviews like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Chun. I'm Miles. I'm Anthony. And I'm Red. Today, Alex chats up Evan Amos, the man behind so many of the high-quality photos of game consoles on sites like Wikipedia and others. They get into his particular brand of tech preservation and how he got into it. Uh, Candy of the World, uh, his book, and so much more. But first, we have a bit of news. End of the year, but we got an early present. Halo Infinite is now up on Xbox and PC. The multiplayer is free-to-play as well so you can get ease of entry to everything else so that's pretty pretty cool beans i played a bit of it it's not really my speed uh i played halo Mm -hmm. like in shoot when was that 2008 so is that what is that like halo 2 uh i think that was halo 3 and reach Reach. i think i played those two uh at a friend's house like i never owned halo yeah um but i picked it up just to try and what immediately struck me was the sound design. Mm-hmm. All of the guns are so punchy and feel so okay. visceral. Like, it's a really well-made game. Awesome. For what it is, uh, Halo Infinite is a very good multiplayer game. Yeah, I'm a Destiny player, and it's always fun for me to see how much how much, I, how much now I know there's shades of Halo inside of Destiny. Mm-hmm. All the, the bungee aspect, you're like, oh, this is why I like this. And that's like, now I see where it came from. In other news, both the new Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Yeah, the game is out. They're both out. They exist. Yeah, I heard they're fun, but also pretty buggy. Yeah. Like, you would be trapped into some random space. They even have some old-time bugs which allows you to go into some unknown zones with total darkness yeah they have and they like upgraded the the underground from both of them where you can like mine for materials it's like a little mining game but even that wasn't enough for it's still buggy and there's a lot of other issues that you can get stuck in i really enjoyed the underground in in diamond and pearl so did i that was one of my favorite mini games it was very delightful and fun to play. I liked breaking into and getting like special gems. I mean, I, I'm the one glitch that I'm glad they kept is the item dupl- du- uh, duplication glitch. <laughs> uh, that's that's still very uh, relevant and needed in a lot of things, and they did a good job in keeping it that way. In our final little bit of news, uh, the Golden Joystick Awards are out. The best game community and the still playing award went to Final Fantasy fourteen. We are always the best game community, and we are always the the, the best still playing game. It just people yes. never realize it because they have never seen this game on the servers. <laughs> they are getting we are getting these awards. It's only because people start looking at us. I would say finally it, recognizing and I would say it again. We 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 deserve <laughs> these awards way long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh I would agree with that. I mean everything that I've seen it does look like a very fun game. And then uh the ultimate game of all time award this year has gone to Dark Souls, uh which is interesting to say the least just because i think when like demon souls could have been that initial spark 
even I don't know. I like Dark Souls three better than the original. It, <laughs> there's there's other ones that could have happened. Bloodborne was a good Souls game. Bloodborne is just a total sadness. Even the studio is not there anymore. Yeah, but that's all we have for this little bit of news. We're gonna throw it over to Alex and Evan. It'd be a very fun conversation. Alrighty, listen up, everybody. And we are here with Evan Amos. Welcome, Evan. Hello. You are the video game console photographer. I, I guess you could call me that. I have officially become that in some ways just because I was the one guy willing to do it. Yeah. How did you become the guy willing to do it? So my name is Evan Amos. I'm a photographer. And I think 2009 is when I started on Wikipedia, where I just started reading a bunch of articles about video game consoles. I've always loved video game consoles. I love the research. I'd been on Wikipedia for a long time. And I just kind of got it in me. I was looking at all the articles for the different consoles. And I just thought to myself, like, I have the GameCube in another room. I could just get my photo equipment, take a picture, upload it and do it. And one of the great things about Wikipedia is that, you know, if you have the drive, you can contribute to it. And one of the big things about Wikipedia, too, is there's a lot of people who mostly focus on editing text, which is, you know, the bulk of Wikipedia. But there are incredibly few people who actively take photos for Wikipedia articles. So if you are someone interested in taking photos for Wikipedia articles, sky's the limit, essentially, in terms of just being able to, like, create content, put it up, and it stays there. But in terms of making those photos and, and making them available, they have to be open copyright and uh, in the cre under Creative Commons license, correct? Yes, they do. Which is a spectacular requirement because that means you're contributing to the body of public works. Yeah, well, that's the big reason why Wikipedia has always struggled to find photographers um, to do that because, you know, there's a lot of images on the Internet and they can't really just be taken and put on Wikipedia. The, the requirement that the license or the taker of the photograph has to relinquish their license and essentially give it to public domain or, you know, there's a lot of different levels, but they're essentially public domain licenses. It, it really keeps a lot of people from it. The way that I viewed it at the time was, you know, it wouldn't take me that long to take the photo of the, uh, the GameCube. I hadn't actually been involved in product photography at that point. So I thought it would be a good avenue to kind of like learn product photography. Previously, I had been um, I had gotten into photography as someone doing portrait photography. When I was in college, I worked in a one hour photo lab and I had never done anything with photos really before that. But being in the photo lab got me interested in, you know, film. And this was like 2000, early 2000. So this was all analog film, you know, 35 millimeter. So I bought a uh, like a an old Nikon camera at a garage sale, and then I just started teaching myself. And I just uh, I would grab friends, and I would just be like, "Let's go to the park. I'll take some photos." You know, I thought that was fun. I, I enjoyed the aspect of creating a situation and then taking photos rather than just being like spur of the moment street photography, where it's like you go and set something up, and then you just take a bunch of photos, and you know have something to pick. The, the photos that you've taken for the Wikipedia are very much the product photos and very much staged, but they look pretty much like the things that you would expect to come out of the, the, these companies. 
However, you can't even use those photos. Like if, if you know, Sony has a photo of its product, you can't use that in the, in the Wikipedia. So no. it's, it's, it's kind of odd to think that way. But you've been like basically redoing. And in a lot of cases, you're the only guy ever to take like these product shots, these glamour shots of some of these rare things. But like you're sort of redoing what the industry should have been doing already. I mean, if you had the ability to on Wikipedia, if you had access to uh, the photos and you could have uploaded them there, I think a lot of the work that I've done wouldn't have created much of an impact because those people would have had access to those photos. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that, you know, people or companies create these like very high quality photos of all their products when they launch. And even going back to just early 2000s, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, Nintendo DS, all of those consoles launched with product photographies that they would give to places like IGN or, you know, any other web outlets. And so these photos at some point did exist, but because of the way that the internet works, people don't keep the originals. Photos posted on IGN get converted down to like 640 by 480 from their original, like very high quality things. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, all that exists is that horrible 640 by 480. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? And mm -hmm. those become the pictures and they're terrible quality and they're very low and it's just lots of compression. So to kind of go in and create um, an archive of photos on Wikipedia where I do everything at the original resolution, I don't downsize. So, you know, when you're taking like 20 megapixel files, and you're just putting that on Wikipedia and you just have that size and that quality locked in, you know, max resolution, max quality, you know, that really helps with uh, like the preservation aspect and the way that it can like be spread about because you always have that baseline access to that high quality photo. You're not trying to like work from those like third, fourth generation, like resaves of something that was once a great photo. You know. This is this is a huge uh, issue, actually, in the preservation world. And actually, I just came across this. I was talking to somebody who is working uh, to they need to find some photos of arcades. And mm -hmm. like, where do you even find photos of actual in the woods 80s arcades there? You know what this these consoles, some of them that you're photographing, you know, they're 20, 30 years old and they weren't photographed this way until you did it. Are there any super rare ones you're excited to have been able to capture? So when I started this, I only had a very small collection of the things I personally owned, which wasn't a lot. I mean, I've always been interested in video games as a kid, but I just had, you know, the popular stuff like NES, Super NES, PlayStation, stuff like that. So when I kind of started the project way, way back, you know, I kind of quickly ran into that wall of like, here's a small amount of consoles. And then you kind of like read through the list of things on Wikipedia. And then you discover this world of all of these like obscure consoles, all of these failure consoles that only existed for a brief amount of time, consoles that were only released in Europe, consoles that were only released in Japan, South America. So it's like so interesting to find out about those consoles. And then you discover that problem that you're talking about where like a lot of those don't even have good pictures, if at all, you know. So kind of being able to go and create the opportunity for people to discover those consoles with high quality photos of them, like really does kind of open up the possibility for, you know, people to discover a lot of video game history. Uh, personally, so I had the, I only had like a little bit of stuff. So what I quickly found out that I had to do is I had to reach out to collectors. Mm -hmm. 
And I would just put out things on Craigslist on like Reddit. I would just be like, you know, I'm doing this project. Does anyone want to help me? You know, I kind of put the call out and I did meet, you know, like it was only like probably like four people that I actually went out and actively photographed their collections. But, you know, you kind of discover these super collectors yeah. and it's like, you'd, you'd be surprised. Like you go up to some guy's house and then it's like, you go into his garage and it's just like wall to wall, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. or something like that. And so a lot of the early stuff I was able to, you know, find that. And some of these people will blow your mind with their collections. You know, probably one of the biggest gets was when I coordinated with the people who did the video game history museum in Texas. Mm-hmm. They used to do like a, uh, at Las Vegas, they used to have a, um, a yearly convention and then they would kind of bring all their really rare stuff as a road show. Mm-hmm. And I think in like 2012, maybe I had gone down there and I, you know, worked with them and I photographed a lot of very rare things like the RDI laser act or the RDI halcyon. That's mm-hmm. what it is. Yeah. The laid the laser disc game system, right? Yeah, it was like 1984, 85, I think. And it was created by like this really weird guy who got a lot of money because Dragon Quest was not Dragon Quest. Uh, Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair, uh, which was a Laserdisc arcade game, got really popular. So it kind of like really elevated him to raise enough capital to try to build this crazy machine, which, you know, completely tumbled out the gate because they had to declare bankruptcy right before it released. And they only made like, I think, two dozen actual systems. And uh, so that's like a really fascinating aspect of video game history. But it's like trying to be able to find one of these like two dozen consoles that still exist in the world, you know, but like just being able to have that kind of photo and just being able to be like, you know, this is what it is. I was just looking through some of the photos here. I wanted to ask where you found some of this stuff, actually specifically for example the 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 viewmaster interactive vision gallery oh that's something that i bought myself you want to buy an (laughs) a viewmaster interactive vision you can get one on ebay for like 70 to 150 bucks i bet oh that's not too bad uh what about the game wave gallery game wave um it's a dvd console it's it's essentially a dvd player Mm -hmm. um it's the uh the console from canada and that's another one of those uh, obscure systems that's you could easily buy it for like a hundred bucks or less. There, uh, there's a whole realm. There's like there's the collector side of video <laughs> game consoles, which everyone kind of goes after, like your 64 DDs, your rare Nintendo stuff. Mm-hmm. But there's also this kind of like gallery of failure mm-hmm. that's like a combination of obscure and kind of no one wanted it ever. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of those consoles, you can actually still pick up for quite cheap. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I'm wondering specifically in that category, uh, wh- whose Gizmondo did you take photos of? Oh, I bought that one. Really? So, well, so after a couple of years of doing this and I met out with collectors and stuff like that, the problem with going to a collector's house to take photos is that you're very locked in for time and you mm-hmm. don't really have an opportunity and you're trying to get like, you know, dozens and dozens of photos taken in like a few hours. Mm-hmm. So like you get a shot and most of the times you only need like a good shot of a console to really kind of, you know, sell it or, you know, be able to share the essence of that console with people. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do those expanded galleries where you, you turn the console around, mm-hmm. you know, you have the console from the different angles, you have the interior of the console. 
you really have to kind of own those systems or be mm. able to have a very comfortable relationship with the collector who would let you take their rare console and then take it all apart. Mm. Mm-hmm. So at one point I had exhausted kind of like that collector realm and I kind of wanted to get back into it. I had not done it, I think for a year or two, but I was like, you know, I really want to go back. I want to retake a bunch of photos. I want to do some expanded galleries, you know, and the only way to do that is to own these things. So Mm. it led to the creation of a Kickstarter. And I just put myself out there in terms of being like, you know, these are the photos that I've taken. And they've actually, at that point, when I started doing the Kickstarter, I kind of realized just how far that they had spread out beyond Wikipedia, because you can take things and you put pictures on Wikipedia. And what you don't realize, at least most people don't realize, it might be different now, But back then, if you take photos on Wikipedia, they tend to become the high, uh, the top search when you do Google images. Oh, yeah. So what would happen is like I take a picture of the Super Nintendo, I put it on the Super Nintendo page, and then later someone Googles Super Nintendo and it's going to be like my image first thing. Mm -hmm. So that really led to the um, high reuse, the high discoverability of the photos where people would just, you know, use them for like YouTube videos, books, all these other things, you know, and you have access to the high quality file. It's a free public domain license, you know, so it it became very easy to be reused. And I kind of never thought about it when I started because it was just like, oh, I'm just taking photos for Wikipedia. You know, that will stay on Wikipedia. It's remarkable what happens when you do things under Creative Commons. you just see it everywhere. It pops up everywhere. I took a photo a number of years back that ended up on a, a Florida news program just because it was a uh, creative commons. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I've taken a number of photos that aren't video game consoles and I always enjoy seeing them pop up in random places. Yeah. You do candy too. I do candy. Just so folks don't know, uh, Evan actually takes candy from all over the world and uh, photographs it in various States. The nice thing there is I don't think he has to have a collector. He can just, you know, crack it open and eat it himself. Oh, that is one of the the benefits of doing the candy. Uh, So when I started the photos on Wikipedia, I did game consoles and then I kind of just tried to jump around the place where it was like, what else do I have in the apartment that I can take photos of that I could use on a Wikipedia article? Mm -hmm. So it's like hammers, staplers, like all those kind of like basic things. You just take a picture of it, throw into an article. And another one that I thought would be fun would be candy because it's super cheap. You know, you just go to like the the Walgreens or something like that. You buy a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I kind of at the beginning, I attacked the candy in the same way that I attacked the video game console stuff where I just made a list and I'm just like writing down everything and then just trying to check those things off as I go. Mm -hmm. And then you discover like all of the different candies of the world when you do something like that. So that was fun for me because it's like every region has their own candies like Europe, Japan, Asia, South America. And I live in New York City, which affords me the ability to actually have an easier time of acquiring some of those things because (laughs) there are like, you know, British shops and there's Japanese Asian stores that, you know, sell candy because, you know, homesick patriot or expatriates, whatever, you know, they want that taste of home. So they sell candy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did a, a, a candy exchange with someone in Australia Nice. That with the violet crumble. Yeah, that's where I get the violet crumble. Great candy. It's like I love those honeycomb candies. You don't get them in America. Mm. Have you ever tried honeycomb candy? Uh, no, I have not. Um, it's like a it's like a brittle brick covered in like chocolate, but it's like um, 
sweet honey ish mm. and it just breaks apart and it's just like spongy and airy have you uh, do you know arrow oh yes okay so the arrow yes yes i have yeah it's like it's full of like little air bubbles and it's hard so it like shatters apart and it's just (laughs) it tastes like sweet honey and it's great uh so i wanted to talk about your book uh tell us about it well so i had the kickstarter and uh when i did the kickstarter it got successfully funded at the end thanks to um a lot of like uh attention i got from like outlets talking about my story talking about the work i did and like the kind of outreach and through that attention at the end of the Kickstarter, I ended up getting a book deal with No Starch, which mm-hmm. is a uh, like a geek publisher. No, we love No Starch. No Starch is fantastic. Yeah, they do like coding books. They did a lot of Lego books. They didn't really do a lot of video game books, if at all. So I was like pretty much like their video game book. Mm-hmm. And so they came to me and it's like, do you want to do a video game book? And I was like, sure. Not really realizing what I had done (laughs) because I'm not someone with a background in books or anything like that. And then that started the process, the very long process of figuring out what I wanted to do. And, you know, I made a version of the book. I had to like stop making that version of the book. I rebuilt the whole thing. But uh, the way that the book is, it is a photographic history of the beginning of game consoles to today. So it starts with like the Magnavox Odyssey. The latest edition goes to uh, the Xbox Series X and PlayStation 5. Mm. And it's a book that focuses really solely on the hardware. Mm. Like it doesn't feature like video game screenshots or anything like that. It's just really kind of like a very specific look at the evolution of video game hardware console to console up through today. And I do a lot of things where I like take consoles apart and you can actually see inside. And Mm -hmm. so... A lot of it is you get to see like the evolution of the motherboard or like the controllers and how they become much more sophisticated or much mm-hmm. more uh, complex over time. So you're going to watch the solder points get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Well, I actually enjoy it because I the the second generation consoles have some like crazy innards, crazy motherboards. Oh yeah. And it, it, just because it was like that time that they would have been released. It was like, you know, you're still using full size resistors, full size capacitors. And plus there's human beings putting these things together instead of, you know, yeah. Robots. Like most of the t- most uh, motherboards today are very similar. You kind of see that when you go through the book and you get to the end and then it's like the PlayStation four, motherboard looks exactly like the Xbox one motherboard, mm-hmm. even down to like the package and the, the way that the, um, the m- memory is like situated around the CPU slash GPU. Mm-hmm. But like when it's in the second generation and the third generation, it was just all over the place. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite motherboards is for the, uh, Fairchild. Ah. It's, a, it's a giant square empty board. It's like silverish. And it's just, you know, like it has a lot of personality to it. I mean, it was literally the first CPU driven game console. Yeah. Um, a lot of the so the first generation of video game consoles was the Magnavox Odyssey, which didn't have a CPU or anything. Mm-hmm. It was all just basic components that analog. Yeah, it formed a logic to be able to move a dot around on the screen, essentially. And from that, uh, in that first generation, you go directly to Pong consoles. Mm hmm which um, were largely driven by like a Pong on a chip IC and really nothing else. But the idea that you could take um, a microprocessor began in like the late seventies when they started releasing all those like eight bit CPUs, it was all new at the time. It was all cutting edge. And so when you had like the second generation, it was like, 
oh, instead of buying a box that has one game built into it, which is just Pong, mm -hmm. like you could theoretically have an infinite possibility of games because you have the CPU that, you know, it's like the logic of the system, but then you have these cartridges mm -hmm. that contain game code that you plug in and you could theoretically play like, you know, arcade games, like uh, memory games, educational games, mm -hmm. uh, card games, poker was popular. The the thing about the Fairchild that I think gets lost is that this would be like Intel making a computer or a video game console. Because at the time, Fairchild was Fair, is Fairchild Semiconductor, the maker of these CPUs, right? Like this would yeah. be like MOS making. But, you know, that's not how it ever worked again, right? MOS did not make an Atari. Well, uh, uh, did not make a Macintosh. Commodore later bought out Moss. Oh, we could talk about that. That's a very ugly story. I've yeah, but there's a lot of history going on. Um, but a lot of the when you have like the beginning of consoles, when it's turned from like these Pong consoles to these uh, CPU consoles, um, it was all like Wild West. Mm -hmm. And so you have a situation with Fairchild where they have developed their own processor, the Fairchild F8. And so uh, there is a very good write up by Benj Edwards that talks about like the entire history of the Fairchild. That's a, a great read. It's on fast life, fast company, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but it talks about how the idea there, there was like two guys who came up with the idea of making a console from a CPU and they brought it to Fairchild. And I think at the time it was on an Intel CPU mm. and you know, these people at Fairchild, it's like, you know, this would be a great way to sell CPUs because obviously we have a CPU. So like, can you remake it to use our Fairchild F8 processor? And it was like, okay. And so they were right out the gate in terms of, you know, the new world of like video game consoles. And it was run by like a bunch of stodgy old men who didn't really know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So they kind of like, okay, let's give it to some of those young engineers and you guys figure it out. And then like, we're going to throw in some horrible ideas from time to time and you're going to have to use them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we are actually out of time, Evan, but please say the name of your book once again. And is there a URL where people can find it? Um, yes. Yeah, so my book is The Game Console. I have just released a second edition, uh, The Game Console 2.0, which goes back and it just, you know, adds a lot more content from the first edition, which I think released about three and a half years ago. Um, the new edition is like uh, a lot more consoles. I added the newest generation consoles, the PS5 and the Xbox Series X. Uh, you know, and just a lot of fixes from the first edition, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, I made some changes. Uh, you can buy the game console 2.0 at, uh, nostarch.com directly. If you want to go through the publisher, they'll give you an ebook copy if you buy from them, but you can also buy it at places like Amazon target. It's a, it's distributed by penguin. So it mm -hmm. actually has a wide distribution. It's not connected to just one site. So you can get it from like Barnes and Nobles and pretty much any major place books are sold in terms of like an online store that you can go to. Excellent. All right. Well, Evan Amos, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And we're back. Woo. Thank you very much, Evan. I mean, we're already seeing Nintendo 64 is behind glass cases at some museums. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> Childhood console. Uh, just right there. That's fun. That's fine. Uh, I'll be honest, it never occurred to me that somebody had to actually take the pictures for Wikipedia. Yeah, right? I don't, I don't know where I <laughs> thought they came from, but... It's just like the most... It's just like a Google search for like the most searched image. You know, whoever makes the Wikipedia page has to put pictures on it. 
whoever yeah you know people pictures don't just appear people have to take them yeah <laughs> i don't know why that's such a weird concept for me <laughs> but i'd never i'd never thought of it and of course no somebody has to do it but no all of those all of those photos that he's taken are really like really impressive high quality photos i think it's just they come in too naturally for us who never write a page of wikipedia and we just thought they're naturally there yeah we just trust we just trust wikipedia we don't need to contribute to wrap up before we do we need to talk about what we've been playing recently so been brushed up on a little bit of halo infinite but is there anything else that y'all have been playing my friends and i are playing a lot of path of exile mm. we sort of wanted a long-term diablo-like game mm -hmm. and i don't know path of exile is pretty fun we're not really following like professional level builds I, I'm definitely super unoptimized in, in the way I'm playing, but it's fun. It gets a bit grindy and repetitive once you're trying to actually get the items that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. But I think that's just the nature of, of the game. Like, there's not really yeah. anything you can do about that. You just got to suck up, suck it up and grind. Yeah. Like, see where, see where it ends up taking. And, you know, we're playing it as like a three man, four man. So it's like the story is kind of just an afterthought for us. But from mm -hmm. what I'm like catching up on it is wild i think we're about two-thirds of the way through at this point with the main the main campaign and oh, wow. like we've already tried to kill god once and spoilers we failed and that's the halfway point and then you have to go kill all the other ones first and it's like okay this got a bit out of hand sorry i have to go kill god i'll be Again. home late tonight honey yeah <laughs> I've been sucked into Horizon Zero Dawn recently, which, uh, as of five years late, uh, it's a very good game. Yeah, what can be better than a robotic dinosaurs? Not a whole lot. There, it's really fun. Red, I think you're going to enjoy what I've been playing recently. Oh, okay. Hades. Yeah, it's a good game, right? Yeah, surprisingly, um, <laughs> I got sort of really addicted to it. Um. Oh, it's very addictive. I was on that for like a week just straight. <laughs> it's kind of like my first like roguelike. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not really like too king on that genre. Yeah. But the weapons are really fun. Yeah. I think the trident is probably probably the best weapon I like yeah. using. Yeah, I like the trident a lot. Especially when you upgrade it. The, the, like just there are so many different things that you can get. I would never really was into too much roguelikes anyway before I played that, and that game just re is still really, really fun and special. It's they nailed it. They nailed that game. It's really, really fun. Got really excited when uh, the first boss when you beat the first boss. Yeah, I got so juiced. I was like, yes, it's so much fun. Well, have you only beaten the first boss? Yeah, <laughs> that's as far as I got. <laughs> It's all good. Again, it, it starts you off slow, but then like the more you play, the easier it is to just like keep picking it up and do everything else. It's really hard to avoid getting hit. I'm glad you're picking it up. I'm glad you're playing it. It's worth it. Everybody should give it a shot. It's it's very it's casual enough too. There's a, the story is perfect for this style of game. I think they really did a good job. Is that about all to, all the time we have today? I I think it is. We want to thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you have any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, please shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our patient supporters who keep the maid afloat. 
patient owners get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we continue that with future episodes every week. This week's episode was brought to you in part by Patreon donors LM and Pseudosoup. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you. So at the end of this episode, we have two more episodes coming out before we take a two-week break for the holidays. So coming up the week of Christmas and New Year's, there will not be episodes those weeks. But we will be back in January. Until next time, I'm Red. I'm Miles. I'm Chin. I'm Anthony. Thanks. We'll see you next time.